Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, hobos and tramps, cross-eyed mosquitoes, bulligan ants, come before you to stand behind you, tell you something we know not about. Um, all right. Well, uh, we've got a little quiz going for you here today just to kind of test your orthodoxy levels. And, um, of course, everybody likes to uh, a quiz. Um, Solve, as always, she likes Jeopardy, and I can't stand it because she knows the answers and I don't. And that's kind of as simple as it is. Um, but we're going to today talk about synergism. Um, it's, a, it's a good thing in marriage. It's a good thing in work. It's a good thing in every aspect of our lives with the exception of our faith. And there uh, we have to recognize that it is God's work alone in us. And why is that so comforting? We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, should we start with a prayer? Dear Lord and Savior, may all glory belong to you, for you have known us, chosen us, ordained us into existence. You have created us from the wombs of our mothers. You have given us life. You have brought us into this world. You have fed us. You have clothed us. You've given us everything that we need to support our body and life. And you have given us a Savior, and you've given us your Holy Spirit, and you have regenerated us and given us a new life. And you are keeping us in this one true faith. And now as we struggle through life and try to overcome the obstacles of life, there you are behind us and in front of us, sending your angels to guard us and to watch over us, keeping us in this one true faith by means of your forgiveness and your life and your salvation. We therefore pray, O Lord, that as we study your word, as we study the history of our church, that we might understand ever more fully the gift that has been imparted to us. And in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen. Okay. Um, we're going to give a little quiz. Uh, could you uh, maybe hit some of those lights there and we'll see how well this works. Okay, whose heresy was it? Dun, 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 bum, dun, dun, dun. Now, here's our choices. Is it the Stoics and the Manichaeans? So who the hell are the Stoics and the Manichaeans? Well, oh, that's the whole point of the quiz. We, this, is, this is just like when I take a quiz on Jeopardy. I don't know the answers either. Um, the Pelagians. Pelagius was, a, uh, was an early church uh, opponent of St. Augustine. The Papists, that's the Lutheran way of speaking to the uh, Roman Catholic, I guess you might call it uh, probably the, the, the leaders of their theology, the scholastics, were these uh, Roman Catholic scholars that lived uh, in these universities. Uh, the Synergists, these are the people who, uh, that's the word that we're going to be after today, that cooperate with God in salvation. The Papists and the monks, you can probably pick up on the idea that the, that the monks probably had a little bit of a, they even went up 
even further in this notion of man's cooperation. And the enthusiasts, uh, these are, this is a word that Luther used over and over again, uh, schlammerei, enthusiasts, they're the ones who, well, let's see what this says. In spiritual things, man is not wholly dead towards that which is good, but only grievously wounded and half dead. In other words, just kind of like you're on the battlefield and you got shot in the leg, but you still continue to be able to shoot, maybe to fight, maybe to drag your leg and walk. As a result, his free will is too weak to make a beginning by its own powers to convert itself to God and to obey the law of God from the heart. So in other words, it's a little bit like the old Volkswagens that if a battery went bad on them, what'd you do to them? You gave them a push and you pop the clutch, right? How many of you even know what a clutch is nowadays? I mean, <laughs> yeah, we did, yeah. Um, you pop the clutch, right? And so here you are, you, you can't quite believe in Jesus, or you can't quite be that Christian that you're supposed to be, and so you need a push and you pop the clutch. Anybody want to vote on who it was that took this position? Papists, you can just slap yourself on the back if you had it. The papists and the scholastics. All right, next. Now, now I know that some of you think that this is actually the philosophy of San Francisco. Um, everything is going to happen as it does. You know, c'est la vie. It happens. Uh, stuff goes on. We, we're just caught in the winds. Um, if you have an impulse, oh, what are you going to do? If you do something bad, oh, that's the way that it works. Karma, that's just the way that it, take, that it takes place. Even in external works, man's will has no freedom of power whatsoever to achieve a measure of external righteousness and honorable behavior and to avoid manifest sins and vices. There you are. We just did it and did bad things and we couldn't help it. Well, any guesses? the Stoics and the Manichaeans. Your flesh, according to the Manichaeans, your flesh is just bad flesh. You've got to get rid of it. Your flesh is going to take you down the tube. Your flesh is going to do terrible things. Your flesh is going to be sinful. And it's built into your substance. That your very substance. And of course, for these Stoics, the Stoics kind of had this idea that you just simply observed life. You don't necessarily get yourself involved in all the things that are... I mean, just are, are the best person of, of all is a person who just steps back and, 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 and watches these retired people walk in late. You know, you just, you just let, let them... Let them I, oh, oh how, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. 
Stuff happens. Yeah, there you are. I got a donut. I can't resist it. I can't do anything about it. Stoics and Manichaeans. Okay. Um, we'll talk about those Manichaeans a little bit later. Ready? Without means, without hearing the divine word, and without the use of holy sacraments, God draws man to himself, illuminates, justifies, and saves him without means. Guesses? These are the anti-sacramental people who do not believe that the sacraments do anything. God just does it all directly. It's kind of like the difference between a landline and a cell phone. You don't have anything attached. God just does it to you directly. They were called the enthusiasts. So when you hear, yeah, <laughs> give yourself. <laughs> well, we're, we're going down the list here, so if you see that there are just a few left. The uh, enthusiasm, uh, the enthusiasts, this is, uh, this is not, this is, this is common American uh, theology. Sacraments are no big deal. God just do his work. How many times do you have people who say, you know, organize religion. You know, I just can't, oh, all those bad people with organized religion. You go, well, let's take a look at your life. Oh, no, 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 I don't want to look at, don't even look at my life. I'm just telling you that religion is, that bad religion is organized religion. And you say, well, how about baptism? How about the Lord's Supper? How about absolution? How about the idea that God actually speaks to us through his word? Oh, I find him in nature. He and I have a really good relationship with each other in nature. Well, is nature going to raise you from the dead? Is nature going to forgive you your sins? Well, I just feel good about God. You go, he's an enthusiast. The enthusiasts. They're the uh, great danger. Okay, let's see what we can find here. By his own natural powers without the Holy Spirit, the free will can convert itself to God, believe the gospel, and obey the law of God from the heart, and by this spontaneous obedience, earn forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Hmm. Synergists, papists, and the monks, enthusiasts, stoics. We're running down on the, our list, aren't we? Uh, who do you think it is? This was the, this was the, the, the crass uh, view here. Um, yeah. By his own natural powers. Pelagius, Pelagianism. Okay, let's try this one more time. Man, after his conversion, can keep the law of God perfectly in this life and by such perfect obedience of the law, merit righteousness before God and eternal life. Only one left, right? That was the monks. That was the papists and the monks. And the monks were doing what? They were going off into monasteries, kind of doing the, the last thing of all, which was, you know, they were... Uh, you have your seven sacraments, right? Well, holy orders is one of those seven sacraments, and by those that that sacrament of holy orders, you were actually entering into a state of perfection. Now, this does something strange for the question of marriage, because once you're once you're married, I guess that's you're not having gotten to that highest level. But 
this notion that you can actually live a perfect life and this is what enables you to be able to um, achieve perfection. Um, this is what drove Luther crazy, wasn't it? This is what drove Luther crazy because he knew that he could not achieve perfection and he beat himself up because of it. Yeah, so, let's have a look here at our handout. If you would maybe hit those lights. Uh, uh, Father Grady, would you uh, schmacken die lights? Und turnen sie anen und flicken. Schlick, that's flick. Okay, so what was this synergistic controversy and how did it arise? Um, Johann Pfeffinger, it sounds like something you eat, was uh, down there in Leipzig at the university. He was a professor. And if you kind of see his connections, you begin to understand how he kind of was responsible for this. Now, when you study at Wittenberg, it's kind of a, I guess it's a little amazing to those of us who have read Luther that these disciples of Martin Luther, these people who studied at the University of Wittenberg, that they would have not known clearly. I mean, Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will, and he wrote it against a guy named Erasmus, and Erasmus was one of those guys that was a, kind of of the scholastic tradition. Um, you know, you cooperate with God, you get your Volkswagen going by getting a little jump start, and onward and upward you go from there with the help of the church to the type of perfection that you need in order to be able to receive eternal life. And Luther, and of course, for Erasmus, you jumpstart that little Volkswagen of a body of yours, of a soul of yours, by, uh, by your free will. Um, a lot of times, have you heard this, this notion, people always saying, you know, we have a free will, we have a free will, we have a free will. I mean, if you engage in any kind of a theological discussion, people will sometimes say, well, I think God gave us a free will. He didn't want us to be robots. You heard that one? He didn't want us to be robots. He, he wanted us to be able to make free decisions for him. Um, and then it looks as though the opposite of that is that you were just some sort of a controlled person who has not participated at all or that, you're, that the influence of the Holy Spirit was just kind of dominating your psyche. And that makes the free will people look as though they have a case. Um, there, the, the Luther clip pointed out in his Bondage of the Will that free will only applies to those things that are, as we say, beneath us. So that if you're wearing that top instead of the other one that you wore on Sunday. Is it a different one? It is. Okay, so there you go. The free will made that decision. And God wants to be able to give us freedom in those things that are neither commanded nor forbidden. So if you have hair or don't have hair, if you have blonde hair or you dye it or you just have a naturally beautiful red hair, that you want to keep for the rest of your life, that's up to you. But not when it comes to the things of God, of being able to believe and so on. Well, they were students of Melanchthon especially, and Melanchthon was a humanist scholar, and Melanchthon just didn't quite have Luther's cutting edge theologically. He was, he was, a, 
he was a great scholar and a great man, but he had certain weaknesses. Now, this Duke Maurice that, that is spoken about in the first paragraph there, Maurice was, he's been described as the Judas of Meissen. He was the Duke of Meissen. Uh, Saxony, you're going to have to remember this for our trip to Germany, okay? Saxony was divided into Ernstine and Albertine Germany. There were, two, there were two Duke brothers, and they split Saxony in half. Now, my great-great-great-grandfather uh, was a twin, and both he and his brother became pastors in Germany. They were first in Germany, and then one of them came to the United States. And it, they were absolutely identical twins, and their parents named them Ernst and Albert, after Ernstine and Albertine Saxony. So... All right, so, uh, so this duke is the one who, who actually, when, they, when there was this battle that came between the emperor and all these, the, the, the duke of, the Luther's duke, Frederick the, uh, the Wise, uh, there came to be this battle, and he switched sides to the side of the emperor. And as a result of it, he then received all this other side, this other part or a good portion of the other part of Saxony. He was called the Judas of Meissen because he supposedly betrayed the Lutherans. But later on, later on, he switched sides again. And he actually then almost captured Charles V. And Charles V just said, ah, fui. And he went off to a monastery down in Spain and he handed his kingdom over to his brother Ferdinand. Ferdinand the First. Isn't there a town in Arizona in, in Indiana called Ferdinand? Yeah, they actually named it after these um, these uh, Habsburg emperors by that name. Okay, so anyway, so here he is in Leipzig, and this uh, Duke Moritz comes and takes over, and then he tries to impose something called the Leipzig Interim on top of the Lutherans. They had what? They won, right? And now they're going to make those Lutherans go back to Catholicism. Well, you can only drag the bull just so far, even if you put a ring in its nose. And so they were looking for compromises. And this Duke Moritz used this Pfeffinger to not only compose the Augsburg Interim, but to also try to institute it or to put it into place. And um, this guy uh, started to uh, bring all his teachings to the attention of the Gnesio Lutherans, the true Lutherans. And as a result of it, he, they were, these Melanchthonians were beginning to struggle with the idea, how, how is it that man comes to believe? Is this all God's doing? Do we have to bring something of our own to it? How many times in America have you heard people come and say, have you accepted Jesus into your life? Have you accepted Jesus into your life? Have you accepted Jesus into your heart? See, Danes don't know what to do with, with that question. Um, you, we, uh, we're picking on you here. I'm sorry about that, kind of. Um, anyway, you get, that, you, you get that strange question. Have you accepted Jesus into your life? And, you, and Lutherans are going, this is weird. I don't know what that question means. He accepted me. He called me. That little baby that's going to be baptized in the service, that little baby is going to become a Christian today. 
That little baby got accepted or will be accepted so that it's God's work. And you notice how beautiful baptism is because you don't have any doubt about who it is that's doing the work. Because the little child is not going, I accept Jesus. Right? And when you have these traditions that wait till the child comes to a certain age, 8, 9, 10, or whatever it might be, and then you start putting the pressure on. You get the group together and you got to be able to tell them, you need to accept Jesus as your Savior. You need to accept Jesus. Finally, the kid says, oh, I accept Jesus as my Savior. And then they get baptized and they say, I made a decision for Jesus. Well, what's the difference between I have done a thousand different kinds of good works and thereby I believe I have earned my salvation and I have done the work of accepting Jesus and thereby gained my salvation. They're just two different forms of works righteousness. Right? And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, this one over here, I've just accepted Jesus as my Savior. That's called cheap grace because you don't, you, if you're going to earn it, don't you think that God would want you to work really, 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 really hard for the rest of your life to earn it? <laughs> cheap. I just made a decision for Jesus. Now, bing, it's mine. No. Uh, so Pfeffinger was struggling with what we call the psychological as aspects of conversion. And that is, don't we see that people will make decisions and it appears as though they do accept Christ and it does appear as though they did get moved to want to be a Christian. And you say, well, you can just see the way, the way that this person just, just you know, asked for Jesus to be their Savior. And you, um, you look at that and you go, yeah, I was... Um, I was on this talk show when I was out in, it was a radio talk show that was out in Utah. I was invited by two guys who were Mormons to come and to talk about Lutheranism and Mormonism. And of course, um, what they did is we were, there, was a, there was a counter where there was a microphone here, a microphone here, and then there was a lower counter with a microphone here and they sat on high stools on either side, and one guy would ask me questions over here, and I would turn like this, and then this guy would read my notes. And then I would, but I, but I sat there like a little kid in a baby stool while they sat on either side. It was a kind of an orchestrated thing. But um, they said, they thought they had, had us dead to the water because we said, you know, they believe, of course, in works righteousness and that they're saved by their works and so on and so, so forth. And they said, well, doesn't the Bible say work out your salvation with fear and trembling? And they, they was, that was kind of, and I said, well, if you go on on that text, what does it say? For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So, in other words, no. Even the good works that I do, I cannot ascribe to me. I have to ascribe them to God. Faith, which appears to me as though 
I'm choosing him, or I'm actually accepting him, or I'm believing in him, or I'm trusting in him, there is no I'm. It's always what God does in us. And Dr. Scarry used to say, on the outside, on the, on the appearance of things, it looks as though we do that. But when we look over our shoulder and we read the scriptures, we come to realize that it is God who converted us. It wasn't us. And it should be a bit of a mystery that it was God who did it all, not us. So that's where the Melanchthonians went, these humanists. Okay, well, um, the controversy was picked up a little later uh, when this university was founded in Jena, University of Jena, in 1548. The, uh, the um, deposed uh, elector, had, they gave him a little piece of land back after a little while, um, and he went and set up another university. University of Wittenberg was under the control of these, this interim and the, the, paper, the um, imperial forces. University of Vienna was now a place where it is that Lutherans could go and have a Lutheran university. And they called this guy to the university uh, who was named Strigel. And he was a bright boy. And then later, later they called the guy named Flacius, who is also a a, a hard-hitting Lutheran, and they started to have a debate over the subject of the free will. All right, now, what, uh, what do we, we say here? Let's have a look here at um, this, this issue. The chief issue is solely and alone what the unregenerated man's intellect and will can do in his conversion and regeneration by those powers of his own that have remained after the fall, when the word of God is preached and the grace of God is offered to him, can man prepare himself for such grace, accept it, and give his assent to it? This is the issue which has been argued by some of the theologians of the churches of the Augsburg Confession for quite a few years. Now, um, this um, became a a little bit of a controversy also with what was called the American Lutheran Church, the ALC, or actually maybe even before that, the ELC. Those Scandinavians, you know, they were, um, there was a division among the Scandinavians, Norwegians in particular, uh, about this. Luther College, uh, they used to train their pastors in the Missouri Synod, and then they began to come under the influence of American evangelical theology. And the question was raised, um, don't we have to choose? Isn't there something that we need to do? Isn't there something that by us doing something? And, and it was immediately the Orthodox uh, Lutherans that became the ELS, the Evangelical Lutheran Synod with its center in Mankato, these were the people who in the Norwegian Synod stood up and said, you guys, first of all, you don't know Luther, you don't know the Formula of Concord, but isn't it clear that the minute that you say that there's something that I have to do, A, then I get to take some of God's glory. I've told you about how it is that we do dishes at our house. 
I leave one dish so that Sobe can come in, wash the dish, put it in the dishwasher, and say, we did dishes together. <laughs> and probably vice versa. This is God. God does it all. He sends his son, incarnation, suffering, death, resurrection, fulfills the life, uh, fulfills the righteousness of law for us, hands it to us, gives it to us, regenerates us, feeds us, gives us forgiveness of sins, gives us eternal life. And then we say, thank you, Jesus. I accepted you. To me and to you be the glory. But the second part of it is this. If it all depended upon you accepting Jesus as your Savior, did you really accept him? It was just kind of an emotional confirmation experience, wasn't it? Because you knew that your parents would be really upset if you didn't get confirmed. So you believe that you accept, but you don't know. You get to college and all of a sudden, that really cute Baptist boy wants to go out with you on a date. And then he tells you that you really didn't do anything because you didn't really have an experience. And you say, oh no, now my salvation is in jeopardy because of something I maybe failed to do. So what happens is, it sounds so enticing. I, uh, I do have to say that... Um, when I was in college, that I had taken a class. I think I've told you about this before. I took a class from a Roman Catholic priest who actually taught what was called biblical backgrounds in literature. And they, he went in and showed in, Christian, in literature, that was very famous literature, that there was a huge amount of influence that Christianity had in literature. You do Milton and all these various Christian writers, Paul Bunyan, or Paul, um, what's Paul Bunyan? Now he's the guy who cuts, yeah. Pilgrim's Progress. What is it, Zoe? John Bunyan. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. <laughs> you can't say that you helped me this time. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so, but he would, he would go into these beautiful stories about how it is that we accept Jesus and we give to him our love and how this love relationship with God is just so absolutely enrapturing and such. And he really did get, it was, it was the most uh, highly attended class at Arizona State University. And there, there were kids there clamoring to get in. And everybody got high off of it because this meant we gave to God our love. Now, I went, we went had a little retreat with our vicar from the um, seminary, and uh, I remember as we were having our little devotion or whatever it was, it was my turn to speak. And it's just wonderful that we can accept Jesus as our Savior and that this love relationship between God and He wants to be able to have our love. And he looked at me and he just said, you, by nature, are blind, dead, and an enemy of God. <laughs> And he was right. I was doing this. Thanking myself for being a person who gave God my love. And you know what? It's just that element of works righteousness that draws you in and then later on terrifies you because if it was something that you did, the question is whether or not you did do it and secondly, whether or not God did accept it. And thirdly, whether or not it keeps on going 
later on in life, if it's an emotional experience especially. So that was something that kind of threw me for a loop. So let's see uh, what these, what, why these Lutherans were so concerned about this. Um, okay. The one party held and taught that although by his own powers and without the gift of the Holy Spirit, man is unable to fulfill the commandment of God, to trust God truly, to fear and to love him, man nevertheless still has so much of his natural powers prior to his conversion that he can to some extent prepare himself for grace and give his assent to it, though weakly, but that without the gift of the Holy Spirit he could accomplish nothing with these powers but would succumb to the conflict. So, in other words, yeah, um, the gas that was put in the gas tank was given to me by God, the wheels are given to me by God, the motor is given to me by God, the steering wheel and all the parts of the car are given to me by God, but I pushed the car and jump-started it. I had natural powers that just enabled, but I, I couldn't have done it without the guests, and I couldn't have done it without the wheels, and I couldn't have done it to God be the glory, and to me as well, for having jump-started the car. I hate to put it in such crude terms, but you know what I mean. And this, is, this was one side. On the other hand, both ancient and modern, say that word with me, enthusiasts, it should be a part of our vocabulary. When uh, somebody says to you that, um, that they're out on the golf course and they are communing with God, you just say, are you an enthusiast? And they'll look at you as though you had four heads and they'll think that maybe you're, you're talking about their swing or something. Modern enthusiasts have taught that God converts man through the Holy Spirit without any means or created instruments. That is, without the external preaching and hearing of the Word of God and brings them to the saving understanding of Christ. The, um, God told me, doesn't that just kind of wiggle your toes when somebody says that to you? God told me. I had this, I had this, this dream, and God told me. And then you have this relationship that goes direct. Why would God want to limit us to the written word? Why, why does he hold us and say, you will find me in that word, and you're not... We know, the nat we know that God's nature is reflected in... Even the scriptures tell us that. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. That's there. But why would he hold us for our salvation to something that had been written by these men all these years ago? Why? I'm not going to move until somebody speaks. Why? Let's, 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 let's change it. It's trans Let's just say, for instance, that we talk about our Constitution in the United States, right? Our Constitution kind of embodies, I guess you might say, natural law. Why do we need a Constitution? 
People what? Forget. Forget what you were all about. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it, it brings clarity to what you're all about, what you, how, how you're constituted as a people. There is a debate going on, it has been going on for quite some time, about how the Constitution is to be treated or interpreted, right? There are those that believe that you should have a Constitution that actually you, you, you judge yourself, you judge your laws by the original intention, right? And that, therefore, if there's any modification to the Constitution, it should be done by constitutional amendment. Then there is the idea that the Constitution is a living document, which is kind of like guidelines, but that, as you read and understand the spirit and the time of the, that you're living in right now, that, that you can accept certain things, like abortion, homosexual marriage, are those things built into our Constitution? No. In fact, our Constitution actually prohibits those things because those are people too. And so you find that actually if you are not bound, in a sense, by a written word, eventually what happens is that the spirit of the times or the people of the time or whoever it is that thinks that they're talking to God, they can now tell you what God is supposedly saying. Islam is like this, and this is one of the dangers of Islam. Nobody can ever dispute what it is that an Islamist, uh, when he says, God told me to kill you, God told me to kill them, God told me. You cannot debate him because there's no written word that says, no, he didn't. For a Christian, if somebody says, I'm going to kill somebody, and God told me that it was okay, we immediately go, what? No, we didn't, because it's either in accord with his word or it's not. And if it's not in accord with his word, now, that's, in a sense, what we're getting at here. The reason for why it is that God binds us to the scriptures is so that our faith can rest in something that's secure, and it does not blow in the wind of what people think in this day or this era. And where we see liberal Protestantism going in our country today, that's exactly what has happened. And that is nothing but enthusiasm. God is up there telling them what to do. Transgenderism, whatever it might be, this is something that the Word of God, all you have to do is go back to the Scriptures and say, what does the Bible say? Now, understandably, it's a little bit more complex than that, but God binds us to his word for a reason. He loves us. He loves us. He won't lie to us. Okay, so, enthusiasm, they rejected. The next one. The true teaching of the word of God. Man is not only weak, impotent, incapable, and dead to good, but also that by original sin, he is so miserably perverted, poisoned, and corrupted that by disposition and nature he is thoroughly wicked, opposed, and hostile to God, and all too mighty, alive, and active for everything which is displeasing to God and contrary to his will. That is the doctrine of original sin restated. 
The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. The heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. And so on and so forth. The flesh is hostile to God. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. What we know, we know that the law is spiritual. I am carnal, sold under sin. And so on and so forth. Boy, you tell me. Then that little baby is being baptized today. As we hold that little baby in our arms and you look at those smiles and those sweet little cheeks and you just feel that soft baby flesh and the cooing, say to yourself, this baby is miserably perverted, poison, corrupted by disposition in nature. He is thoroughly, she is thoroughly wicked, opposed and hostile to God. All those things. You want to see why it is that we have to take our reason and put it out the door? And we have to recognize what God is saying. And that, of course, is one of the reasons for why we are so desperately desiring that you baptize your children soon. When your pediatrician tells you, you know, you really, you really shouldn't bring that child and have that child around people for another uh, three months or whatever it might be. Uh, it's okay. We can bring that child to be baptized. You can tell all the people in the congregation not to breathe over that baby, but bring that kid to the waters of baptism, El Pronto, and if there's anything that happens, if they ever go into the hospital, you call your pastor right away. And if it's really, really, really bad, you baptize that baby yourself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, I baptize thee in the name. And that, that's what you do. You can always recognize it later. But when that promise of God is there, reason and sense goes out the door. And what we do is we have to believe the Word of God beyond our own sensation. Remember Thomas in the sermon today? Unless I touch, unless I feel, I won't believe. No, believe the Word because the Word creates what the Word commands. So we're, we're, we're working on that one. So good old Lutherans, we don't, have, we don't have a single thing that we can use to boast before God. Okay, now... This, though, raises a question. Okay, so God converts us. God lays the works out for us. He does all these things for us. What, do we do anything here? Either we're doing what he wants us to do, or over here, I'm choosing and such. No, Luther says it's a little bit like the horse and the rider. right? That the rider bends the horse to do his will so that what the rider is doing with the horse, it's the rider who is directing the horse and leading it and guiding it, but the ideal is to have that horse engage in joining with the rider in his will. So they want to say this. To some extent, reason and free will are able... Well, this is a, um, th that part I'm going to... Um, Jump down to, down to the third bullet point on that second page. For this it follows that as soon as the Holy Spirit has initiated his work of regeneration and renewal in us through the Word and the Holy Sacrament, 
it is certain that we can trust and must cooperate by the power of the Holy Spirit, even though we still do so in great weakness. Such cooperation does not proceed from our carnal and natural powers, but from the new powers and gifts which the Holy Spirit has begun in us in conversion. So, in other words, um, when you get into the airplane and the airplane flies you to Paris, France, you can say to your kids, we flew to Paris, France. But did you? <laughs> you cooperated with the plane, <laughs> and the plane flew you there. But, yeah, when we are baptized into Christ, the good works that we do, we, he, we do with our wills, but, it, but they're the wills of the new person, the new man. And it's always imperfect, and it's always weak. But we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. As that wind comes, our sails are picking up that wind, and the boat moves. And we may be back there handling the rudder a little bit, but it is God who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. But he wants to work in us. I, I, I think if we just use an analogy here, why is it, um, that last, was it, a uh, couple Sundays ago, Natalie Mayer made for me a nice drawing of the church window. I always like those drawings. You know, the kids always portray their pastor as being absolutely bald. And I, it's the most fascinating thing to them. You I've got my little granddaughter says, you don't have any hair. You know, it's kind of like, <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, it was <laughs> surprised to me too. But, um, but what you say, why is it that we, we want our children to do this artwork? Why do we want them to finger paint? Why do we want them to do something other than to paint even by number? You would say, because it's a joy to see what they create, isn't it? It's just a, a joy to see what they make. Why do we want Natalie over there to sing? It's just because it's a joy to see her sing. You're really stuck now, aren't you? You're going to have to really do it. Why do we want to be able to have somebody write their feelings or whatever it might be? Because in that beautiful self-movement, they express something of their person. And God made us into persons. Those centers of consciousness, he loves us like we love those little kids with their emerging personalities and every single one of them is different and every single one of them, single one of them is just for us a, a, a flower that blooms right in front of us. Do you know what God feels? He gives us freedoms in things that are below us so that we actually maybe even come to understand a little bit about his own genius is anybody here a painter? Painters, raise your hand. Oh, come on, Mo, now you can raise that hand. Painters, painters, painters. Who's anybody else a painter? Well, yeah, Linda Harris, she's a painter. Oh, yeah, there she is, Peggy Coulson. She's our, our number one standout painter. Drawer, painter, all those things. Can you imagine, as you sit there and you try to be able to capture that sunset, 
you go, man, can you believe what kind of a painter God is? Can you believe the beauty of these flowers or that grass, uh, flowers that we hope are going to eventually <laughs> come into existence? You look at a flower and you go, man, the creator, the hand of the creator. And in trying to be able to even learn how to do that, you come to appreciate it. Well, it's the same thing with what we call good works. God wants us to try to love so that we might understand His love. God gives us rebellious children so that we might understand what it's like to forgive. <laughs> Did you ever get your cell phone back? Yeah. <laughs> oh, what kids will tell me in my confirmation class. You just cannot believe it. God gives us all these things and allows us to participate in this life with a free will so that we can understand things, but also he wants us to remember that when it comes to those things that are above us, those things that are spiritual, those things that have to do with the power and the Holy Spirit and such, this is all God's doing. So there, this idea of free will is not something that we throw out the door. Look at this uh, first paragraph, first button here. To some extent, reason and free will are able to lead an outwardly virtuous life. But to be born anew, to receive inwardly a new heart and mind and spirit, is solely the work of the Holy Spirit. He opens the intellect and the heart to understand the scriptures and to heed the word, as we read in Luke. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. All right, that, this idea that, of this outward life. Is it possible that outwardly non-Christians could leave, lead nicer lives than Christians? Yeah. I have known some people who may even be described as atheists, and they are the nicest doggone people you would have ever met in your life. And I've known Christians, hmm, um, hmm, um, and we have to back up sometimes and again take our reason and our sense and put it on the table because people are going to come along and they're going to say, when they say, see Christians fighting or they see Christians who are doing bad things or they see guys, I hate to say it, but guys like Donald Trump in the White House who's got his bimbos left and right and, and then he claims to be a Christian. And you're just going, ah. yeah. Now, okay, that's that. That's the political world and we'll let that be. But we have to recognize that does, we don't have a claim to being the best people of the world. In Outward righteousness, outward righteousness, a person can actually be outwardly righteous and sometimes nobly outwardly righteous without even the Holy Spirit. What they are motivated by, I don't know. I do know that God rules all things and sometimes he even makes people, leads people, directs people, guides people, is himself fashioning people for his purposes. And so if you pray earnestly for a good uh, president or a good congressman, uh, you, you pray for that. You don't necessarily have to have a Lutheran in the White House. 
In fact, it would be nice, but sometimes there's a confusion over that too. Um, we, we, when you see that, don't be fooled by it because that righteousness doesn't avail itself before God. It's only before men. And, be, and like, like Paul says in Romans, if they do good deeds, they have something to boast about before people. But never, ever, ever before God. All of our works, Paul says, are as filthy rags. And that's what God sees. So we turn around and now by the Holy Spirit, we do want to be people who do live good, righteous, and holy lives. Let's look at the last paragraph and then we come right to our conclusion. There is, there, well, read it with me. There is, therefore, a great difference between baptized people and unbaptized people because, according to the teachings of St. Paul, all who have been baptized have put on Christ and thus truly, are thus truly born again and now have a liberated will. That is, as Christ says, they have again been made free. As a result, they not only hear the word of God, but also are able to assent to it and accept it, even though it be in great weakness. Okay, so, we don't, however, want to throw out the door the idea that you can't tell the difference in a Christian when they've been baptized. If you've been baptized into Christ, you should be a person who does want to forgive. You should be a person who does want to turn the other cheek. You should be a person who does want to love your spouse. You should be a person who does want to feed your neighbor or clothe them if that neighbor is naked or hungry. Um, but in great weakness. But we still want to be able to say there's a difference. Let's make sure that there is a difference in the eyes of the world so that they honor baptism too. All right, and then um, summing up everything, what the Son of God says remains eternally true. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And what St. Paul says is also true. For God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This appealing passage is of great, very great comfort to all devout Christians who perceive and discover a little spark in a longing for the grace of God and eternal salvation in their hearts. They know that God, who has kindled this beginning of true godliness in their heart, wills to continue to support them in their great weakness and to help them to remain in true faith until their end. So, what they're trying to be able to say to us is that it is comforting for us to know that if God actually created this faith in us, that he's going to stick beside us all the way to the end of our lives and hold us in that faith. If the one who created faith in us is gracious, then the one who will also keep us in this faith is also gracious and will be with us. Okay. Have we just about covered everything here then, too, yet? All right. Well, I'm, uh, we'll, um, next uh, week we'll pick up another controversy 
the synergistic controversy. Do you, do you use, by the way, those of you guys, people in your businesses or teaching or whatever it might be, do you use the word synergism? Has that been used? I think most often it has been. So when you hear your employers saying, we need some synergism around here, you go, no, 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 we don't want any of that synergism. Okay, let's pray. Oh, Lord God, Heavenly Father, out of your great mercy and grace, you have called us before eternity to be your own, and you created a faith in us. And in that faith, we recognize that you are the one who is the author of it. And since you are the author, you are also the finisher. You are the Alpha, and you are the Omega. And in comfort and in peace, we therefore give thanks to you for all that you have done for us in Christ. To know that he has done everything for us and for our salvation, we give you utmost praise and honor. And we do so with asking your blessing upon us in this coming week that we may carry out your will in the world in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen.